0: If you love all things gardening, why not join us at our Spring Fair from the 3rd to the 5th of May at Bewley in Hampshire. You'll find everything you need to kickstart the season. Find out more at bbcgardener'sworldfair.com. See you there! This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. Just because you're working out doesn't mean you shouldn't look fabulous. The Inspire Collection by Kalia was designed with both style and performance in mind. It looks good, feels good, and stays put no matter how you move. And the collection has everything you need for a day at the gym. A support bra, crop tanks, bike shorts, amazing leggings, and more. It's their most versatile collection yet. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. Hello, and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. Welcome to this very special edition of the Gardener's World magazine podcast. I'm Lucy, editor of the magazine, and I'm here in the heart of the Cotswolds with one of my all-time heroes, Prue-Leaf. Where do you begin to list her achievements? Chef and pioneering businesswoman, creator of a world-leading cookery school, author of so many inspiring recipe books, a prolific novelist, a campaigner, broadcaster, and formidable judge on Great British Bake Off, and of course, a gardener. That's why we're here. She's not only opened her beautiful Cotswolds garden for charity over many years, she's embarked in her 80s on creating a brand new garden for herself and husband John to enjoy. And you join us here in the garden today? So, all round national treasure, Prue, <laughs> welcome to our podcast. Oh, I like national treasure. <laughs> I love that. Thank you.
1: Thank you.
0: Well, well it's, it's, it's a delight. I'm looking one way, you're looking the other way. It's a beautiful view that you have here. But, um, but tell me, gardening is all about time. But as the listeners will have heard from that introduction, you pack a lot into your days. In fact, you tell me you're just about to head off again for another filming of Bake Off. But how, and perhaps more importantly, why do you still make time for gardening? I would like to make much more time for gardening. Um, there are two
1: things that stop me. One is that I do work quite hard and, I have a, and I'm have, and i away a lot. And the other is I'm so bloody old. <laughs> you know, I'm, eight, no. I'm 82. And I tell you what. If I get down to weed something, I never get up again. You know, it's, it's, and when we were filming, a, a recently we were filming a little um, TV series on making this new garden, <clears throat> and one day I fell over trying to keep a tree in traction which was bending in the wind. And so I was doing up its rope, <laughs> and I fell over on the grass, sort of rolled over rather inelegantly. <laughs> And I thought as I went down, damn it all, I know perfectly well that these, the film production company will insist on this being in the film. They will not kindly cut it out. <laughs> so I thought, well, I better rescue it. So I said, okay, this is how old ladies get up. And then I demonstrated, you know, you put one leg out there, and arm here, and you lean over the and you roll over on your tongue, and you get up. Um, so I, am, I, I wish I could pretend that everything in this garden is gardened by me hardly any of it is because fortunately <laughs> six years ago I married John who I had been with for actually 10 12 years and he is the muscle around here so he does all the heavy lifting and I do the grand dam stuff we'll have that over there and this over there and I think a little bit more mulch on this please and so so I'm I'm not really a proper
0: gardener anymore it's in your head, though. Oh, yeah. And in your ideas. Honestly, yes. you could tell that. And, and when you're away, do you think of your garden? Which, which bit? Uh, is yeah, in no, your, I are going away because I worry world.
1: that things won't get watered. And, and, and John keeps insure, assuring me that everything happens fine. Um, and he, he does get a bit irritated with the way I boss him around all the time because I just fret. You know, I know we've got, for example, this year, We got in a lot of trees really too late. They were supposed to go in in March. It was too wet, we couldn't put them in. We have clay soil here, which is the worst. Mm -hmm. So we have to put a lot of good stuff in there. And one way or another, they didn't get planted. And they were planted at the about the towards the end of April, Mm -hmm. which is just too late. So now we have to go around watering 150 trees <laughs> and I had determined not to have an irrigation system because I've had them many times in the past and the fact is sometimes you so rely on them and you think it's all fine and then something happens and it stops and you don't notice mm. until everything's drooping so I thought no we'll just plant things in the middle of you know really very early spring so that they'll be established by the time the Weather dries up. Didn't happen, so now we have to water.
0: Well, I know that. Uh, well, I know Monty has a line. He always says the most important thing in gardening is to be observant, mm, to exactly. look and Absolutely. see. It. And, and when I, you have an automatic anything, yeah, as you say, it's doing it, it for you. For you nothing beats your yeah. own experience and your own eyes. Yeah. But you, but
1: then, because you're not feeling the soil, you don't. You don't see it until the plants are drooping. No. So anyway. But um so I'd like to get away with not having an irrigation system. But it is it does take seven hours
0: to water everything. But as you say, you have some muscle on yeah, site. I don't? do, I
1: have I have a lot of muscle actually because because what happened when I sold my house, which is just half a mile away. Um well not even half a mile away, five hundred yards away. Um the people who bought it are really nice. It's wonderful to have great neighbours in your old house. Um, but they don't know anything about gardening or farming. Mm. So, And there's a farm that goes with all this property. And so we, we divided. When I sold the big house, I kept 50 acres and sold 100 acres. So it was a quite a little farm, but it was still a farm. So they don't know anything about farming and they don't know anything about gardening. And they're very sweet, and they admit that. And so John still manages everything for them and for us. And it works quite well because it means that between us, we've got three gardeners, really. I mean, they've got a really big garden, and then they've got another house, which is an old barn, where I made a grass garden once, and it's beautiful. I'd like to show it to you, but they're rebuilding everything, so it now looks like a building site. Um... And there are three cottages, so they own all of that, but we look after the gardens, So we have three gardeners. And it's really nice to have a team because, A, they like working together, and, B, when you've got something heavy to do, it's not you struggling, you know. know. I mean, I remember when I was young enough and I would be pushing a wheelbarrow full of paving stones or something, it's really heavy. And then when you get, you get there, you've got to lift them all out. And then you've got to lay them. I mean, it's all hard work. So a bit of male muscle
0: is not to be sniffed at. Or well, a bit of any muscle. I know you had uh, you have Philippa, um, who anyone, anyone who watched the program, I can't recommend it highly enough to watch the Channel 4 series, Prue's Great Garden Plot. That's right. I devoured it. And it was fantastic. Know, Just, and to see that... the ambition. You know, and, to be honest, you, many people are winding down by the time they hit their sixties, and here you are—you're <laughs> building a house. You're, you're oh, laying know. out grand plans. What's what's driving
1: well, it, it? it? It's just so exciting to do new things, and and I really was lucky to have the house and the um, and the garden because it made me not regret the old house. Because mm. if you've lived somewhere for forty five years, and I promise you, when we left the, the big house up there. It was perfect. It had had 45 years of attention. And things had gone backwards and forwards. And sometimes I would made mistakes and everything else. But I really felt when we sold it, it was at its zenith. And, you know, I'd just done a new rose garden about three years before. and, And roses take three years to look absolutely at their best. And they were perfect. And I thought, oh, I'll never be able to, you know. And then, of course, what happened is my mind just switched to the new place, which was a building site, nothing but concrete, because it was a farmer's yard, mm-hmm. and we had to get rid of all concrete. And, and somehow, the new house and the new garden just made it perfectly okay to leave the old house, so that was good. Anyway, but you'd... Philippa is absolutely mm. crucial, because she's a real plantswoman. She was a... The, she. This is the first gardening job she's had, working for me, um, but... The difference is that she's really interested and so she reads all the time and she I mean, she already knows, she knows much more than I do about gardening. And also, she is, she used to be a florist, so she has a real eye and she knows flowers. And so every now and again I get her to do a marvellous great bunch of flowers or something. So she, she is terrific. Um, but she's not, I mean, uh, you know, they're not full-time, these guys, so you can't.
0: You've got to have a little bit of it to yourself as well. So. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Tell me how gardening first came into your life, because it, it wasn't something that uh, I, I think was a, an no, early passion.
1: No, no, not at all. I mean, I can remember my mother being in the garden, but she never, you know, got me interested in it or anything mm. in South Africa. Um, and I grew up in a in a garden, in, in a biggish garden in South Africa, and we were always outside, but I just remember climbing trees and playing football, and, <laughs> you know, I, and having picnics. I, I, I don't remember ever doing any gardening. Um, although we did have an old nanny who used to keep her pea. Yeah, I mean, she had a pot under her bed and she would keep her pea and water it down. And- Tell me, it was very good for the pansies.
0: <laughs> Which is just the sort of fact as a kid, you kind can of yeah. oh, but uh, I know oh, that's wow. what I remember. Yeah. <laughs> and then, um,
1: but when I and then I was living in London, starting my business and my restaurant and school and catering company and all the rest of it. So I was just not interested in gardening. Mm. Um, and then I came to live in the country when the children were two. And the reason we moved to the country was because. If you've ever had two two-year-olds in a supermarket, it was just horrific. I mean, one of them would lie on the floor and bang its head on the ground and shriek. And it was awful. And then when I, t- I noticed that whenever I took them into the park, as soon as they were let off, they would just be happy as anything. And you'd never see a child crying in the park. Never, almost never. I've never seen a child crying. They are happy because they're outside. Mm. So I thought, oh, mm. what we need is a garden. So then we started looking for a country house and we ended up there. And um, and then I, and I did not know the difference between an oak and an ash. And I remember somebody saying that little ditty about, you know, it's something to do with predicting the weather or something. If the oak comes out before the ash, right, you know, there'll be a splash Flash, or something. Yeah. Sunny weather. And so I thought, well, i better learn which what is an oak and what is an ash. <laughs> and actually, around here, oak and ash are the main hedge hedgerow trees, so you do get to know. Oak. And that was my first horticultural <laughs> lesson. <laughs> um, arboristic, um... Lesson, and then because I'd inherited this great big garden, I started to get interested in it. But not really until the children were past kicking balls into the borders. You know, where, at the beginning it was mostly um, jungle gym and uh, swings and sand pits, and but then gradually, of course, I got into it. Well, I was going to ask, um, so it it wasn't so
0: much a love of food then that drew you to gardening?
1: Oh, no, not at all, not at all. Um, At first it was just because I I became interested in my predecessor's garden. I mean, I made some terrible mistakes. I mean, for example, I decided that I didn't like conifers. I mean, what a stupid thing to decide. It's like saying you don't like soup, and they're really good in the winter because you get some structure in the garden. And So there were three conifers. They turned out to be so. They were really Barking, important, yeah. valuable trees, and they've probably been in there for a hundred years. And I chop out one of them because I thought, "Oh well, I'll use the top for a Christmas tree." <laughs> I mean, how could I be so crass? <laughs> and of course, as soon as I took out one, I realised why there were three. <laughs> they look better as three. <laughs> threes. Our, you know. I mean, so I, I think you know, you, you have to somehow make your own mistakes because people can tell you this stuff, but it yeah. doesn't go in, does it? Anyway, um, but then I got interested in, in food when I started to realize that we could grow her. I started with herbs mm. and flowers for the restaurants and my catering company and so on. And the herbs were very successful. Um, but first of all, they weren't all mm-hmm. year, you know, so the chefs would get fed up. And when I tried to grow vegetables for the, for the restaurant, because I wanted to grow organically and I wanted to do it all, you know um, properly. The chefs would complain bitterly that my carrots were all different shapes. Some of them were full of holes. <laughs> the carrot fly had got in them. And they could never rely on me, like they could rely on the market down mm. the road or the or the wholesaler. Um, so that didn't really work very well. We, I, I did grow something successfully, like, um, you know, Jerusalem artichokes, which were at the time quite difficult to get, and so they like that. And of course, they keep well, so that was all right. But by and large, I was a bad veg grower.
0: But I know that Raymond Blanc, who I know you know very yeah, well, yeah. Um, he always says that the biggest pest in the amazing gardens at Le Manoir, the biggest pest of the chefs. Yeah. They come along and they pick, and they don't, you know, they, they nibble. Don't, they don't. They don't, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're picking. And they
1: complain because they haven't got, you know, strawberries in Yes. December. Yeah, exactly. I know you have to. You have to understand. Um, but I. Oh God, Ramos. Ramos Gardens are so amazing. I mean, they make you unhappy every time
0: I go there. <laughs> because <it's, laughs> and he's now got this beautiful composting machine. Did growing your own, starting to garden, even if you weren't growing your own food, but clearly you then moved on to that. Did that increase? your passion for seasonality and seasonal eating, or had, did, was it the other way around? You, you, your, your love for that brought you into gardening? No, I, I wish the, the two were really connected. I just, as I,
1: as I became a better cook, I realized that things taste better in season. So it was really about trying to write good recipes or trying to cook good meals. And so I think it was more taste-led than knowledge-led. And I always found it difficult. I was never, you know, I'm now a patron of the Sustainable Restaurants Association because I really believe in it. But I actually came late to all this. I wish I could say I was a pioneer in um, organics and, and so forth. I mean, we're really now making this um, farm and everything organic. Mm. Um, I just wasn't up there. Um, so I can't claim to be a pioneer at all. I've been a follower. But now I'm really enthusiastic because once you start on bees and the hedgerows and um, trees and understanding about um, just understanding about pollinators. But you know, once you get stuck into it and you realise just how clever bees are and how amazing they are, you
0: do understand that it can be an obsession. <laughs> so, what are you doing for bees in the garden? How are they, how well, are they becoming part of your plans?
1: Well, we've got. Two hives at the moment, which is, which is our toe in the water. And we got them last year. And one of them is absolutely brilliant. And the, and the bees are as busy as anything. And they're just fantastic. And the other one had something that I had never heard of, which is when the, the queen bee, I mean, she doesn't, actually, she doesn't change her sex, but she stops laying. She, she, she lays nothing but female and she lays nothing but drones mm. instead of female um, eggs. And as you know, in, women do all the work, including in the bee world. And if she doesn't lay females, she, you don't have a hive. And so the hive gradually dies. So we've lost a whole hive. And actually, I'm, I'd be very interested to know if one of the reasons is one of the hives was blown over in a gale a little while ago. where Lots of trees came down and stuff, but the, one of the hives came down. And I think maybe being tipped upside down and then was too much of a shock and the queen started doing (laughs) the wrong thing. (laughs) Anyway, so that, we've lost that hive, but the bee man who helps us, and he's terrific, um, is coming back and we're going to have 10 hives. So we have planted um, white clover all over, Um, we've had some red clover. That's good for bumblebees, (laughs) but mostly white clover on all the fields because we we have to improve the soil because the previous farmer was a you know uh, a non-organic farmer so he depended on fertilizer and, and to be honest i have great sympathy for farmers because if you want to go organic you have to come out of everything for 2 years so they don't make any money for 2 years and you know not many people can afford to do that but farming was never my main thing so you know it's okay i can just about manage it so we're going to have 10 hives and we've decided where they're going and they they like water so they're going to go down some are going down near a pond over there and some are going near a little stream up there and we've planted lots of borage in the corners of the fields they love borage and um, we're going to allow the female hawthorn to grow in the hedgerows every so often like hedgerow trees. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, they've been chopped for so many years as hedge that The trees are rather, they aren't the straightest trunks, most healthy looking trees. They're all over the place. So they will look like a big mound on the top. But it doesn't matter because if we just let them grow, they will do the hawthorn bit in the the spring, you know, May. Beautiful flowers. Yes. Yes. Beautiful May. And the bees absolutely love Mm -hmm. hawthorn. So everything's interconnected. I mean, one of the most Lovely things in my great old age is to suddenly become interested in the interconnectedness of nature. It sounds really pompous, but it is so fascinating. And I was in um, Exbury Gardens down in um, near Southampton, amazing, um, amazing gardens. And in their shop, they had a book, and it was called Nest, and it had a picture of a bird's nest on the cover. And so I bought it because I just such beautiful, beautiful paintings of birds' nests. and then you go through this this book, it is totally fascinating how birds adapt to whatever they are. I mean, a wren will build a nest, um, but they're always basically the same shape. You can mm-hmm. tell it's a wren's mm-hmm. nest, but if it's um, you know she'll take advantage of a of a pylon or a, or a a bit of fencing or something, and just adapt the nest and use some of the structure to to have a... They're amazing constructors. I don't know why I'm rattling on about Wren's nests, but But you do get fascinated
0: by all this stuff. So nature has entered your sort of gardening world in a way that maybe it wasn't then a few decades ago. Absolutely wasn't. I mean,
1: when I was... um, I mean, what I wanted in my old garden... I think was a classical garden. It was a very big big garden, it's five acres, and it already had herbaceous borders and um so on. So it 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 had all the sort of classic things and it was lovely. I mean we had a, a rose tunnel and which was all sanders white and um and uh pale d'azio clematis. Absolutely fabulous. And then a huge herbaceous border, which God knows I changed that over and over again. I kept thinking, finally, I got rid of it. <laughs> it's just so Too much, much work. Yeah, and that happens as you get older. Mm. And also the other thing that happens with a big garden is, like most people, I, c- I can't go to a garden center without coming home with something. And so I haven't planned what I'll go and buy, and I end up with something that you know, perhaps shouldn't have, and so in the end, your, ha- your garden is too full of stuff, mm. and and it takes either somebody else to come in and say get rid of some of this, mm. or a, a disaster. I mean, we had a, a huge, big, beautiful um, walnut tree, quite close to the house, and it was big enough for the children to have a swing in it and and treehouse in it, and all. It was a sort of family tree. And I actually loved this thing. And we realized it was beginning to die and it was, you know, it was hollowed out, you know, how big yeah. old trees get. So I spent a lot of money, uh, you know, injecting the soil with something or other or some expert would come along and do some treatment for the stamping. And it didn't make any difference. One fine day in a high storm, it blew over. Very kindly, it didn't blow towards the house. It oh, flew the other way. lucky was that? how lucky was that? <laughs> yeah, And do you know? And I thought, oh, my God, it'll take years to grow another one. And as soon as we cleared it away, I thought, God, it just makes the garden look so wonderful because you could could see the house. Um, It just opened it up. And I think that we don't do enough of that. And I've been better here because I'm so conscious of um, this is a very open space. It was a farm. Um, the only trees are in the hedgerows, and there are very few of them. It's windy as hell. We're quite high up, so the first thing I did was think, okay, how do I build a shelterbelt? I mean, I'll be dead before the shelterbelt is there. But I still want trees to grow from now, but it's too windy for them. So we're going to have to. In fact, we we were looking at various solutions yesterday. What we've done for the most precious trees is get those. I regret to say, very expensive tree guards,
0: mm-hmm. yes,
1: which are seven feet high, which gives them a huge amount of protection. Maybe not quite enough, but I could always put, wrap them with, um, you know, some sort of filigree plastic horror, you know, that would um, keep the wind off them. And you can't just put a solid windbreak up because the wind will blow it over. It has to be a perforated one. You know, to like, filter the filter the wind through yeah, it's right, got to yeah. filter the wind through it and slow slow the wind down so we've got a lot of trees which need protecting before next winter and um, and and we will build a shelter, shelter belt and we will build a new copse down there ma- mainly for the wildlife um, and we're going to have margins around all the fields and a nice path for, for I always say the path is for John to push my bath chair. <laughs> when I can no longer walk, he can push me around in my wheelchair. He knows he has this role coming he up. He does know this, but he says I'll be pushing him, but I don't think I will.
0: How many have you planted? How many trees have gone into this ground? Um, so
1: far, we haven't done the shelter belts yet. Um, we've just done the ones that are in the garden and hedges and stuff. Um, I think 160. Seven to about a hundred um, and ninety trees, and you know the trouble is I can't stop buying them. <laughs> trees, trees. Are, I don't think you should get obsessed with trees. It's, you know, you you then want an arboretum. Because it's just so wonderful.
0: You have the makings of one with 190, but um, but then I well, look at...
1: No, most of those are oaks and rounds, mm. which are in an avenue right through that field.
0: I'll show you later. But then I look out the other way, and you've got the most exquisite container garden out the front. Mm. So, yeah, that's full of so, beds. So you balance this this sort of rather wonderful landscape with yeah, yeah. something very close to hand. Well, what, what, what's important for you about the the closeness of and the container gardening?
1: Well, the ones that are there, all my herbs are in an old um, stone trough. And that gave me the idea that really, instead of raised beds, what I needed was just big troughs. And, of course, I couldn't afford huge stone troughs. (laughs) So I went to the agricultural shop, or rather John did, and came back with, you know, cattle troughs, Mm. aluminium cattle troughs. And they're beginning to... Um, calmed down. When we first put them in, they were so bright, shiny silver, they looked absolutely horrific. A bit of bling. (laughs) Too much bling, even for me. But what we have in there is a mixture of annual stuff, um, which is just fun for flowers and um, for the look of it, and veg, so that we can plant veg. So what is going in now will go in now. There's a few flowers and a lot of veg. But, you know, there are only me and John here most of the time. So even with just those troughs, we have a glut of lettuces um, and then no lettuces, you know. I mean, I'm yet to meet the gardener who can manage to. People talk about um, making, you know, plant, success. Succession
0: plant. planting, yes. Mother
1: Nature wants to do it all at once. I mean, you. I once tested, I I read that you can plant a potato. If you planted a potato in a bucket every um, a week, every week, one week, one potato in each bucket. Over twelve weeks, you would have twelve weeks of new potatoes. Come May, June, July. Well, I did this, and when it came to May, every single one of them was ready. <laughs> I mean, they had just caught up. <laughs> you know, Mother Nature does, and it's the same with fields. Farmers rack their Oh, it's raining. We won't get the planting done. It's going to be too late, and all this. Stuff. And they get it done, you know, four weeks late. And when it comes to harvest time, it's all ready. And tell me, what do you do with your glass of lettuce?
0: We all have <laughs> it. So go on, help us out here.
1: <laughs> Compost heap. I'll <laughs> um, well, tell to you good what. Use. I do know one tip. If mm. you if you grow very few lettuces, I mean, I, my problem is I always want to grow lots of different varieties because the ones I like are the. Um, sort of frilly ones and the and the chicories and things that which have got more flavor than you know I, I, I do like butterhead lettuce but I don't uh, you know I like lettuces with flavor but I did I know a guy who grows salads for a charity for for water aid actually but what he does is he grows salads in a polytunnel and he grows Um, It doesn't grow as many as you'd think, but what he does, and it's really painstaking, is when the lettuce is very young and the outside leaves are just perfect for picking, the outside leaves are now saladini. He picks all the outside leaves off, say five leaves off each or four leaves off each, goes down, picking just four leaves. He doesn't yank the whole thing up and then, as I would. And then he does that all the time, and because they grow from the middle, You can keep on eating the outside leaves. So if you only have one lettuce, you can make it last a long time, as long as there's only one of you in the house. (laughs) Perhaps you need two
0: lettuces for two of you. Go the whole hog, have
1: three. (laughs) Yes, have three. You only need a few lettuces
0: and you can keep
1: going for ages. But you have to just pick them. Pick the outside leaves. But the
0: whole cut-and-come-again salads mm. and leaves mm. are such a gift for yeah, people who have yeah. not got much space, maybe yeah. not got yeah. much time, exactly. but still want that regular bit of fresh on the plate. And even if,
1: you know, the fact is, even if you, you're driven to the supermarket or the farmer's market or something, um, a lot of the time, even most of the time, it's just still such a pleasure to have your own stuff. I mean, what we grew last year was... We grew beetroot. We didn't, some things we didn't bother to grow with. I didn't bother with carrots because I'm re, I really learned my lesson about carrots. <laughs> the soil's too rich and they bifurcate and they're difficult. Oh, we did, uh, Philippa put in a few, but I ate them when they were absolutely tiny. But we grew very nice beetroot. We grew cabbage. We grew um, uh, sprouting broccoli, broccoli, which is really easy. And we grew tom- baby tomatoes, you know the little cherry tomatoes. Next year, I will buy. I will buy. Uh, this year, I'll have. I'll, buy, I'll probably buy them in plugs. Actually, Philippa might have bought them already. Um, of just Gardeners' Delight because they have more flavour. The ones we bought last year looked fantastic because they tumbled over the edge of the um, trough, and they were like huge. Um, festoons of, I mean, they were like Christmas decorations. They were just masses and masses of red baubles and yellow ones. And actually, I put a, on Instagram, I remember, a picture of me holding up two of these
0: um It sound like sprays. swags.
1: Yes, <laughs> like earrings, you know, because I like, <laughs> like excess, <seat>. excessive earrings. <laughs> and, I mean, that was their best use because people absolutely loved them. People kept saying to me, you know what are they and i would say well actually they don't taste that much <laughs> they aren't see so they to... watery um they're just tasteless they weren't particularly watery they were beautiful looking mm-hmm. but they didn't have the flavor i like food to have real flavor
0: yeah they were fine i mean we ate them all but <laughs> but tomatoes you can overwater and that can dilute the flavor yeah but yeah, you do need to start with a good variety yeah yeah it no, does I, help. Think you do. What... I think i think it
1: and um and then of course i like everybody else i'm I, can't resist making stuff with, like, I hate to throw things away. I really don't like putting things on the compost heap when I think it's edible. And so I do make an awful lot of jam and a lot of um, jellies. And actually, it's quite funny because we decided, <coughs> do the right thing, that when we planted the orchard, which we did three years before we started on the house, so that got going. It's not, You know, it's now five years old and it's quite good. So last year we had our first crop of apples off it. And we had decided that we would only plant endangered species, pears, mm. apples, dams, and plums, you see. So we'd do the right thing. And we got this sort of lovely guy. Um, but his obsession was apples mostly, but rare varieties of apples. He knew everything he could about every single kind of apple. And I just... You know, lost the will to live because I couldn't hold any of this in my mind. I said, just label the damn things. So we now have (laughs) labelled lots of apples. Oh, you're like a mini Brogdale. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) The National Collection. Uh, We have a National Collection. of. But you know what I discovered is he kept telling us these are all, you know, you're doing the right thing because these are all endangered species. I mean, if we don't plant them, they will disappear. Well, I now know why nobody plants them. I mean, they are bloody inedible. (laughs) I mean, most of these apples are this big. I mean, they're like a ping pong ball, Mm -hmm. if you're lucky. Much too small to peel. If you're growing them organically, I'm sorry, but however hard you try with a squeezy, you end up with scabby apples. So they are scabby, small, sour as anything, (laughs) and absolutely no good. I mean, obviously, there are some, some varieties which are completely delicious and there's one which I've forgotten the name of but is ap- um, it's the best apple I've ever tasted but most of them are these hopeless apples but could I throw the away? No so I made masses of apple jelly because with apple jelly you can chuck everything in, never mind if there are a few leaves in there, never mind if there's stalks are still there, don't bother to peel them because you just boil them and then you, of course you you strain the juice and you make beautiful, clear jelly. I had a very bright idea this year. You know how Jeremy Clarkson has got into trouble with his neighbours?
0: No one thought that him moving in would ever be a quiet addition to the neighbourhood. <laughs> <laughs> no, but,
1: but anyway, um, I think he needs to mend a few fences with the villagers, you see. So I've got this idea that I will make tons of... and I'll have to get some volunteers to help me because it's a lot of work. This year I'll have even more apples because the trees are bigger and I'll make masses of diddly squat apple jelly and we will sell it in his shop in aid of his local charity for so that, so that people love him a bit more. <laughs> Well, we'll hold you to that, Prue
0: Leaf. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll be I, back. I'd love, and I'd maybe I'm going to gonna come it. back and help stir the pot.
1: Well, I'd love to do it because I've still got about 200 jars of, I'll give you one before you go, or I, I'll give you six before you go, <laughs> um, of very nice apple jelly um,
0: from last year. So I, I'm, I will do it if I possibly can because And if you can't make the jelly, you could squeeze it into juice. You could make cider, you could make juice. Do you know what it takes to make cider? Uh, yeah, no, I went down to the
1: Newt to see how they made cider because John got all keen on the idea of cider. And I mean, honestly, jelly is easier. You don't need a press. You, yeah, it's much easier. But the, a, a, a decent cider machine that will do it automatically, A, we don't have enough apples for it, and B, it would cost a fortune, and C, it would take up half your barn. However, they do make the most wonderful cider there. They do.
0: What else will you be harvesting this summer?
1: Mostly salady things. And celeriac this time, I'm hoping. And uh, parsnips, I like pastips. The thing that the trouble with parsnips is they're so late. Mm-hmm. That, you know, you're clearing everything out of the... Out of the beds, except except the
0: parsnips,
1: and I imagine that may be the same with celeriac. I don't know.
0: Yes, yes. You get you get your celeriac first, but they do take up a lot of space, and they're in the ground for a long time. But um, delicious when they when yeah. they come. I mean, you talked earlier about about being led by taste and flavour. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as a gardener, I tend to. I always think it's yeah. much nicer when it comes to your ground. I'm sure you're also slightly convincing yourself, but um, I'm sure. But you, as a chef for the palate that you've got that hmm. you you must you must. Like, I to think
1: that I think that's true, but I also think um it's actually I, I you know one of the great arguments that the sort of organic movement has always had is that the veg tastes better mm-hmm. um i think that's more to do with the fact that organic veg is often bought from a farmers market and it's fresher it's more to do with freshness than to do with variety very often i think if you if you got um, I don't know. I'd like to be able to prove this, but uh, somebody ought to test it. But if you looked at the flavonoids, or whatever they're called, in at the Dutch-grown um, hydroponic to- tomato, perhaps when it just comes out of the greenhouse, it would be like your or your my tomatoes. You know, when you just pick a, a tomato, it has a bloom on it and a, uh, a scent that disappears within a day. And I would like to know if those tomatoes taste like nothing from the beginning.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Is it the variety or is it the length of time that it takes? Because, you know, it'll be two weeks before we eat it.
0: Well, I think it's a revelation to people when they taste homegrown tomatoes yeah. compared yeah. to what they buy from the shops. As yeah. you say, mostly grown hydroponically. Yeah. And the difference mm-hmm. between growing in water and growing in soil, yeah. I think without doubt has it an impact on the It must flavor. have. It must have. You know, so but you can get sometimes i mean let's uh, you
1: know be fair i mean i have had the little um, cherry tomatoes red the red ones in a packet from the supermarket which have been absolutely delicious really you know as, as good as you get in the south of france they might have been they might have been grown in the south of france <laughs> you know who knows i i mean i i'm not too quick to criticize um Supermarket food, because I think they try really hard. And I think you've got to remember that not everybody can afford fancy food. And, yeah, goodness. I mean, sometimes some of the, the best revolutions have been led by the supermarkets. I mean, things like Italian food. It was waitrose, really, who got stuck into, let's do this properly. Let's get proper Italian spaghetti and Italian um, pesto and so on. And, um, you know, some of the supermarkets who've really got stuck into Middle Eastern food or, or Indian food, I mean, they, we wouldn't have done that. You can't rely on a little farmer's market or a corner shop to provide all that stuff. And it's so exciting.
0: You're famous for the colours that you wear. You're sitting in front of me wearing lovely colours, amazing jewellery you have. How does that translate into the garden? Do you well, are, your, your love of colour clearly translates into yeah. I, into mean, what I you think plant. it's because I'm South
1: African, you know. I was born in South Africa. And so I grew up with, <clears throat> you know, very strong blue sky, very strong uh, blue ski- sea. And Wonderful flowers. I mean, like cannas. I still grow cannas. Um, they're in the greenhouse at the moment, but because they are, they're just so exuberant and so, and they radiate colour. It's not just that it's a good block colour; it's that it shines through it. And and I love sunflowers. And I mean, you know, I think all those things that that the sort of um, sort of Gertrude Jekyll's school would have considered a bit vulgar. I had one of my best friends, <clears throat> probably my best friend. She's dead now, but she had the. She was my gardening mentor. Um, she's called Jill Parker, and she was the wife of Peter Parker, the the chairman of British Rail for many years. He was a very wonderful man. They both were, but she had the most fantastic garden. But I used to tease her because it seemed to me she was such a a sort of elegant and smart plants woman, as opposed to me, not elegant, not smart, and certainly not a plants woman, but just likes vulgar colour. She would always want to have the smallest little plant, the most delicate, rare, and generally white thing, tiny little thing. I mean, she took the greatest joy in... She knew all about snowdrops, and if you turn... Snowdrops over—they're all different and they're so beautiful. But you know what? I like great—I like snowdrops like they have at Welford Park, which is sort of—if it's not the national collection of snowdrops, it should be because it's just woods like like bluebell woods, mm. but they're, and they're just a the vulgar common one. But my God, they're wonderful. I like big and bold, and I'm not very into delicate, perfect.
0: And do you cut them for the house or do you feel that they're better in the garden? There's such a debate over how to make space for flowers when you haven't got much space. Well, I mean, we're lucky because
1: we do have quite a lot of space. But, of course, I miss the big garden because we had so much um, mature garden that I could al- always go out. And if I couldn't get, even in the depth of the winter, if I couldn't get flowers, I could get berries or I could get, um, you know, wiggly, tortoises. and mm-hmm or grasses or whatever. Whereas here, I'm, I struggle a bit more in the winter. Um, but we still manage something. And um, uh, I mean, I like hedgerow stuff. I just, I've just been pinching from... I knew they were about to cut down the hedgerows, so I went and cut down all the... Um, John came and helped me, and it was terrific. We cleared a whole bank of Alexander's Mm. The mm-hmm. Alexanders. Yep. Alexander's are a sort of green version of cow parsley. But they're absolutely beautiful. The leaf is beautiful and the and the flower is beautiful. And I've put them all in a a huge big tub and they're standing in the sun in the kitchen with, a, I hope, the sun going to dry out the seeds so I can mm. plant them from seed. Um, but I have tried before and it didn't work so I didn't know what I did wrong. Well, my hope is that what I plan to do with this, and you tell me if this is wrong, but I'm going to leave them um, in the window in the sun until they're dry. And then we're going to take the seeds off. I'm talking, my husband's just walked in. We're talking about taking the Alexander seeds off and then we'll shake them all off onto Mm a a big white sheet, dry them in the sun, and then keep them in the fridge till next March, and then plant them.
0: I wanted to talk about um, what you look for in a garden because I know you're part of the New B and Q Garden Competition. Yes, I know. know, uh, It's rather. What what do you look for in in other people's gardens? I mean, it's
1: interesting the B and Q Gardening Competition because there are lots of different categories, Mm. and so and I forget what they all are are now. um, But there's, um, you know, there's one for almost. T- tiny little almost window boxes, and then a, um, a, class- a classical garden, and then there's a, a um, environmentally friendly garden. And so there are lots of different categories. So anybody ought to be able to enter it. So I was rather enthusiastic about that because it was very democratic gardening. This, and um, uh, what? But what? If you're asking me what personally I look for, I and I, I struggle with this here in this big garden is that you have to choose between shelter and views. And we have the most wonderful views here. And I'll take you up onto the terrace upstairs, but you, it's 360 degrees of Cotswold view. And, I mean, nothing could be nicer. It's absolutely lovely. So when I'm up there, I think, oh, I can't, I can't, the shelter bell's going to ruin that. But it, it has to be a balance because um, it's always that. It, it, too much... Too many trees and you can't see. In my old house, I had trees on three sides. And so it never occurred to me that there was a view the other side. I didn't know there was a view there because I, it was an old garden when I came. There was a huge shelter belt right around the house. And the only side that there wasn't was facing due south, where you don't need shelter from, from the south. And it looked straight over to a lake. You know, so you couldn't have had a better view. Um, But if I had to plant three sides of this, I wouldn't know which to plant. So it's going to be a problem for my successors, not me.
0: Do your children garden? Did they they pick up some of your love of it? No. But they are at the right age to start wanting to do it.
1: I reckon in your forties is when it's irresistible.
0: I read that you said that everybody should have a, a major change in life every 25 years, and mm. I, think, I think you, well in your late 70s, that's when you were moving from yeah. down yes. the road to here. Yeah. It's a very right. ambitious 76. and forward-looking mm. philosophy to have.
1: <laughs> well, I think I developed it after it happened. It's, I wish I could say I set out to say I am going to have a revolution in my life every 25 years. But when I look back, I realise that's exactly what I did do. I mean, I, for the first 25 years of my life, I... I was a cook, and I, and I was, you know, that, that led into school and um, catering company and restaurant. And then in 93, I wanted to write novels. I mean, I'd always wanted to write novels, but I, I, I was writing a lot of journalism and food and cookbooks, but I had never been brave enough to write a novel, but I wanted to. And so I thought, let's sell everything start again. So then I did that for 25 years or 20 years or something. And then I started on television and other stuff.
0: (laughs) So it
1: it just happened, really. I mean, it's a very, essentially, very
0: optimistic view.
1: I think I am. I think if there's a secret to me, and I'm so unsecretive. I mean, my brother used to call me Mersey Mouth because I have no discretion. I tell everybody anything. Um, But... If I, if there is a secret about me, it is the secret is that I'm a glass half full woman. I, I never think, um, you know, if things, something goes wrong, if I try something, and I've, I've had lots of failures in life, but I don't dwell on them. You know, I think, oh, that didn't work. I won't do that again. Or I think that didn't work, but it was a damn good idea. Let's have another go. But I'm always looking forward and I'm always thinking, what can we do? And right now, I mean, it's completely ridiculous. I am so old, but I've just started a production company with my daughter, film production company with my daughter. I'm about to do my first one-woman show on, on theaters in New York, um, Los Angeles, and all over England, and all over America, but not, not all over America yet. We're going to do a toe in the water mm-hmm. in LA and, and New York. But what am I doing? Planning for one woman shows at my age—it's
0: ridiculous. And, um, you, and, and you garden. And do you think your your sense of optimism made you a gardener, or did being a gardener I'm... help the? F- because it's all about looking forward, isn't it? And it's all about it is, investing time. And that's time. The, the thing that it has over cooking in spades mm. is that
1: gardening. Although they're both creative and they're both sensory and satisfactory. And and you, you have that creative thing of I did that and look at it, isn't it wonderful? And you have that when if you made a wedding cake or a, or a beautiful salad niçoise or, or a herbaceous border. But I think the joy of gardening is that it lasts, you know. That you, it takes a while till, till you see your creation happening. It's so exciting when you first see the bulbs come up or whatever. So all of that. But um, I think the... Um, optimism thing, I wish I could say that this is some kind of virtue, but it's just luck. You know, it's you're optimistic if you have enough serotonin in your brain. It's about chemicals in your system. And if people who are profoundly depressed, it's not their fault, they don't have enough serotonin
0: in there. So, you know, I'm just bloody lucky. Thanks for listening to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast. So if you've enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app. And we'll see you next time.